And so what I'm trying to say over these weeks is that heaven has already begun. If you're like me, you grew up in a reality of heaven is there then. But what I'm trying to suggest to you, based on what Jesus is saying, is that heaven is here and now, and eternity has already begun. Now, just because heaven has already begun doesn't make a heavenly experience our normal reality. It's not automatic, and it requires work. Jesus comes along, and he's trying to put to words something that we all feel on a deep level, which is what good art is. It represents something that we feel, and we go, and it resonates with us. Jesus was trying to put words to what heaven is like. And so many times throughout the gospel, he's like, man, just someone scratch his head. You know, the kingdom of heaven, well, it's like this. And he taught in this very layered approach, this very nuanced way, because he didn't want to just teach for knowledge. He wanted you to experience heaven as an emotional reality as much as it was a cognitive reality. So we paint a picture of a majestic king who would invite sort of beggars and street people to dine at the table and would feel incongruent, but then you see the graciousness as well as the irony of that kind of king like no other. This is the kind of teaching that Jesus was trying to evoke in us. And so what I want to do tonight is, is talk about one of these layered approaches. And there's a parable, uh, a parable of two sons with two very different reactions. But the parable is taught in light of three parables that are consecutive. So it's really hard to teach the one without at least highlighting the other two. And it's really confusing if you don't talk about the whole chapter. So I want to look at Matthew chapter 21 and kind of do a, a, a close examination. I hope this is encouraging for you. As I began to dive into this, it, I, it was this layered approach. And I, like an onion, I just kept peeling back the layers and it was super encouraging to me. Uh, but it's really interesting. Now, I'm probably roughly five weeks behind everyone else in the country because what I'm starting with is what happened in what we call the triumphal entry. It's the Palm Sunday message. And that's the, traditionally the message you preach the week before Easter. But as people of God who believe that practice is a new deed, we as missionaries are trying to live into how does the resurrection change everything? It's more than one person's story. It's supposed to be part of all of our stories. So how do we live into this present reality, the kingdom of heaven, and let new life and rebirth become more and more of our story? So here we go. Jesus now has this kind of coming out party. It's Jesus walking into or saddling up literally to go enter Jerusalem at Passover. And what we have at the beginning of this is at chapter 21, verses 1 through 3. It says, as they approached Jerusalem uh, and came to Bethphage at, on the Mount of Olives, Jesus sent two disciples ahead, saying to them, Go to the village ahead of you, and at once you will find a donkey tied there with her culture by her. Untie them and bring them to me. And if anyone says anything to you, say to them that the Lord needs them, and he'll send them right away. Now, I don't know what you think of this. I don't know if this was somehow the Holy Spirit would just kind of bring some kind of spirit of agreement or affirmation, or more likely, it was a prearranged moment. But so much of Jesus' ministry has been, shh, don't tell anyone. Shh, just keep it to yourself. Hey, keep this one under your hat. And he's doing all of these remarkable things, and he's not wanting it to go really public. I personally think that Jesus didn't want to broadcast it because he was trying to compete with consumerism. 
Yes, consumerism existed outside of the Western United States 2,000 years ago. Because if you have someone who's feeding you fish and chips, and you didn't have to work for it, that has a way of drawing a crowd. If you have someone delivering demons, healing the sick, raising the dead, it has a way of a guy getting a reputation for cool party tricks. And that will drum up a crowd, like a cake party. And so he's saying, all this time, and he's not grandstanding. Well, now, he's about to go into Passover. And this is this time in Jerusalem where uh, scholars would tell us at the time of Jesus, there was about 50,000 people that lived in Jerusalem. But at Passover, pilgrims would come, walk days together. They didn't have family vacations. They had yearly festivals. About three of them every year. Passover was like Super Bowl week. And so there would be upwards of 200 to 250,000 now in Jerusalem. And Jesus sends a head for a donkey. Now, many of you are great scholars and you would go, is there significance with Jesus sending the head for a donkey? Which I would say, uh-huh. Yes. This is not the first time that this has happened. But he calls for this donkey to be sent and it comes to him. And so he, he, he starts to paint a picture for reality because if you look back in 2 Samuel, you see that David, after being overthrown by his own son, rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. And then his son Solomon rides into Jerusalem on a donkey. So Jesus now is mounting up, literally, and having this coming out party as the new messianic king. So, it's a really bold statement what Jesus is trying to say, because if you are the Romans, right, um, you have this idea that there's a lot of Jews and you don't want to have an uprising. We are keeping our thumb on that. But there was always a saying that went on around Passover at big next year in Jerusalem. This was the same next year in Jerusalem. Because there was this hopefulness. And what are they hoping for? A new Moses. Just like Moses delivered them out of Egypt, they're waiting for a new Moses that would deliver them from the oppressive reign of Rome. And so here's Jesus coming from the Mount of Olives, which is on the east side. Well, concurrently during this time, Rome would unleash large armies and create what would be equivalent to Sherman tanks. They would have like chariots rolling in and, and, and legions marching in because it was a demonstration of power and of might. And if anyone was going to say they're the new king, it was going to be Caesar is king. And they knew that there was always this expectancy, this, this messianic prophecy that someone else would rise up. And they were there to squash it. So on the west side of Jerusalem, you have the show of force. On the east side, Jesus is showing up on a donkey, a show of complete servanthood and humility. Pretty beautiful work of art. Pretty dramatic painting of picture. What kind of power, what kind of authority was going to come marching in and collide at this Passover? Well, you can imagine what the people's response was. But before we go into that, I want to talk to you about someone else. Maybe this picture looks familiar uh, to some of you. Anyone know this image or the artist behind this image? Banksy, thank you that we have some cultural fluency here. 
Bass is one of my favorite. Uh, he is a street artist who, there's many different theories over who Banksy is. Uh, but we know that he's British, uh, and we know that he's a bit of a subversive. Uh, some would be, call him a graffiti artist, others would call him a street artist who um, picks and chooses some of the most strategic places and times to make a very pointed statement which is exactly what Jesus is doing as well. So this mural, this stencil, was actually, it's a guy with what well, should be a Molotov cocktail, but he's got a bouquet of flowers. You know where it's painted? Goth Strip. This is against the Great Wall, the divide between Israel and Palestine. Because there's a different way to fight battles. This is a picture of a dove, but it's called the Armored Dove, and it's got scopes sighted in on it carrying an olive branch. This is in Palestine, right? Because there's another way that we can fight this. There's another way. So in this very poignant, very, uh, uh, very timely kind of word, there's this way that he's trying to interrupt us in our normal, interrupt us in our conflict, and say, you know what? We ought to think about what has become so normalized. And maybe think about doing it differently. A couple other images. This, he snuck in uh, to this ghetto that had been all bombed out in Palestine. And this man comes out to him, a Palestinian man, and, and he asks him the question, I don't understand what you're doing. Why are you painting the cat? I don't know what this means. Tell me what this means. Because it's a beautiful picture of a cat. And he says, I want to bring attention to what's going on around here. He says, what does a cat have to do with it? He says, well, I want to post it on my website that so many people just spend time on their on their phones and on the internet just looking at pictures of cats. So we wanted to add one that they might catch their attention to in Palestine. Genius, right? But he's also a little bit mischievous, so he's been known to break into, not break into, it's, it's legal. He's not taking anything, but he goes into places like the Louvre in France, uh, and, other, and he adds some of his own artwork. Because in addition to corruption that he's hostile against, uh, in environmental degradation, uh, he hates greed and, and, and sort of the wealth and materialism. So he always offers this kind of juxtaposition of, so here's all these fine arts, and he decides in an expector gadget uniform to add some of his. Now, he had his own take on Monet uh, and what we're doing to the environment, uh, and then he wanted to contribute to the Mona Lisa, uh, and he just adds it just to get people thinking. Um, there's a famous picture of him stenciling this on, on, on a wall, but it became a print. And he took the print and it went to auction. I think it sold for over a million bucks. And here's the thing. Right as the gavel sounded with the buyer, here's what happened. The frame was triggered, you know? Immediate shredder. He thought it was a joke that his art was selling for this much. He's like, are you kidding me? He's done exhibits in LA and, and mocked. A-listers from Hollywood buying his artwork for so much money, over a million bucks, because it's like, this is ridiculous. This is stenciling. It's more about the commentary, right? I don't know if you heard about the time he snuck into Disneyland. He brought in mannequin parts uh, of a whole body, and he brought in a uniform from Guantanamo Bay. And it's at Space Mountain, and he came along, and he just said, Disneyland shut down the park for three hours. They didn't know what it was. They didn't know if it was a terrorist threat, but he wanted to make a statement, and he calls it Dismal Land. 
uh, and he has this cultural commentary on what's happening, and it's not the happiest place on earth, but also all the corruption, the greed, and, and so forth, because who can actually afford to go and do this? And then he has Jesus, who died for our shopping sins and all the consumption and greed, right? And so my point is this. There are times to make a very strategic statement at a strategic location. Jesus does the exact same thing when he wants to proclaim that heaven is here and now. And the kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is a present reality. So at Passover, when the, the city is just swelling to about five times the normal amount, he chooses to mount up on a donkey and come riding into town. And it says this, the crowds that went ahead of him, uh, uh, went ahead of him and those that followed shouted, Hosanna to the son of David, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, Hosanna in the highest heaven. You know what Hosanna simply means? It simply means save us, save us. So then the question you have to ask by the scholars is, from what? What is it that they're asking to be saved from? Is it from my own sin? Is it from myself because I have self-destructive tendencies? Save me from my own addiction. Save me from my death. Save me from my miserable marriage. No. This is a statement about salvation from Rome. Because Rome has now so taxed them, so oppressed them, people who used to own land are now left to be day workers on what used to be their land that they would field. They want an overthrow. They want that. And so what they do is they create this spontaneous flash mob of a red carpet and start laying down their cloaks, start laying down their jackets, thinking, why is it that they're so enamored with Christ? Because they want to deliver. Because they want their national identity back. They want their national autonomy back. They want their land back. They want to be free people. And if someone wants to mount up and overthrow Rome, we're all in. In fact, I think it's mildly ironic that to this day on Palm Sunday, kids come waving palm branches because the palm branches were actually a nationalistic sign of what it means to be an Israelite. It would be like the alt-right coming in, waving these palm branches, and that's what they were doing as they were laying it down. This wasn't like the Messiah is here. They're like, oh yeah, it's going down now. Like, here we go. We're going to rally. We're going to overthrow Rome. As if it was going to be a political demonstration, except all the military might was on the west side. We're east side, yo, and we ride in on donkeys. This, this is the contrast, because good art always has good contrast. So you read on. Uh, he says, when Jesus entered Jerusalem, the whole city was stirred, and he asked, Who is this? The crowds answered, This is Jesus, the prophet from Nazareth in, in Galilee. Jesus entered the temple courts uh, and drove out all those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables and the money changers and the benches, those selling doves. It is written, he said to them, my house will be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a den of robbers. So I've got to just ask a couple of questions. The kingdom of heaven uh, isn't simply just about bringing justice. The kingdom of heaven isn't simply about being compassionate or showing grace and mercy, or being generous. The kingdom of heaven, when we talk about what it means to experience heaven on earth, or entering into 
kingdom of heaven. We're not talking about simply going to heaven when we die. What we're talking about is entering into the kingdom of heaven, is surrendering our lives to the rule and reign of God. Entering into the kingdom of heaven on earth is saying, I want to participate in your salvation. Because the world that you and I are living in is the world that God created but not intended. And so he wants us to participate in that salvation. And so when he says the kingdom of heaven is here and now, he's saying that's a present reality, but it's not automatic. I need laborers for the harvest. I need you to participate. And if I've in any way affected your life, go and affect others for the kingdom. And so here's these people laying down the robes, and they're saying, and, and he starts going into the temple. He's ridden in, and he goes to a portion of the temple. Remember, there's five courts. There's the Holy of Holies, and there's the court of the priests. Then there's the court of men, the court of women, and then the court of the Gentiles. I mean, you want to talk about a caste system. Jesus goes to the outer court, where they're selling what? Doves. Except that Jesus has an authentic expression of anger. So you have to ask the question, what is it that he's so angry about? Because the banking industry hadn't always been located in the temple courts. But why does he go to these people? What was the normal acceptable sacrifice? A lamb. If, if we go back and watch Prince of Egypt and we understand the Passover and we understand our cartoon history of, of what Pixar has done for we understand what's happening. But why is he so mad at people who are selling money and exchanging? Well, these are pilgrims who've come for multiple days' journey, and you don't bring your animal sacrifice with you because it's supposed to be unblemished. God forbid your best lamb or your best animal like stumble or, or get hurt. But it was practical to travel, so they'll have money that they need to now exchange. For those of you who travel with fashion, you know what the pain is. You always feel like you're getting gouged when you exchange money. I'm like, okay, now this just became monopoly money. I have no idea how much it actually is, but I'm just going to go waste it before I get it. You know, I mean, you, you just, I remember being nine years old and on a boat between, like, Denmark and Norway, and they had slot machines out at sea, and I was nine, and I was just like, and money meant nothing to me. I was just like, yes, I can gamble, because this is play money, right? Well, here's these money changers, gouging. But the thing that makes it so significant that we miss when we read this is that since most of us didn't read Leviticus last night, there's a provision in Levitical law that says if you are poor and can't actually afford a lamb, it's okay. There's room for you at the table. What was the provision for people who couldn't afford a lamb to sacrifice? A dove or a pigeon. So who's Jesus living at? Who does Jesus like lose it with. He comes in and starts turning over the tables because the most vulnerable among you, the most needy among you, the ones that we're trying, you move the banking industry into the temple worship. And the religious leaders are in cahoots in bed with the, the Roman leaders. And they're like, oh, hell no. Because this is hell on earth. And he starts turning over tables. In fact, John's count talks about him even having a whip. Like, he was going to have a reasonable court. And so he starts going off and painting a picture of what heaven on earth was supposed to look like. The problem is, is that when we think of heaven on earth, do we not think of kind of like a goosebump? Kind of like, like a little mountaintop high? 
like, I can dream of your love forever. Like, surely the presence of the Lord is in this place. Jesus comes along and he's like, this is not a goosebump. This is like, oh no, we're, we're going to release righteous anger. We're going to actually practice justice in, in a harsh way. And so he comes out. And now I have to say this. When I, whenever I read about Jesus turning tables, I sort of get inspired because I like to fancy myself on Jesus' side. I like to think of myself as part of the protagonist, or excuse me, the protagonist in the story. But I have to admit that sometimes in the gospel narrative, I might actually be the antagonist too. There's times where I'm both, right? Like, we go back and forth. But I want to align with Jesus' team. And so when this revolutionary side of Jesus comes up and he's like going against the man and he's throwing over tables and he's pissed at corporate greed and he's mad at people who are just selling out and, and selling out their own kind and not looking out and, and taking advantage of the poor. And, and, and so, but he was disrupting the status quo. It had become normalized. Think about what's normal in Austin. Illiteracy? It's not supposed to be normal. Hunger? Slavery? Like, this stuff is not supposed to be normal. Addiction? Not normal. This is not the world that God intended. Jesus shows up and he looks around and he's like, I am going to disrupt the status quo. And it goes after the leadership, but everyone's sort of culpable because this is the system everyone's living in. It's like, oh, sucks to be them. Too bad for them. Oh, almsgiving. Or you know what I'm saying? Like, but that's their problem. That's not mine. And so here he comes and he starts confronting what is the status quo. And so the question I have to ask, even though I want to align with Christ and be excited about his revolutionary ways, is that if Jesus showed up to Mission Hills, would he throw over any of our tables and challenge what we allowed to become our status quo? What is our normal? If he came into my house, would he come up to my kitchen table and toss it and say, I hate what you allowed to become your normal? This was not what I created. This was never what I intended. I have to ask that question. Jesus comes in confronting the very thing that we've allowed to become normalized or the status quo. This, you've allowed it to become too convenient. You've made faith out to be too comfortable. You've made faith out of something that feels entitled. You've made faith out of being like a little lucky rat's foot that you keep rubbing to hopefully get your way. And he's like, no. What has your faith become? And so I receive this as part of the maybe sometimes part of the talk. And so I just want to throw that out there. I, I know that sounds kind of heavy, but when Jesus is overturning tables, I have to ask myself, would he, does he need to throw over any tables in my life to ask the questions of accountability and say, this isn't actually what I intended? Because they've got the temple. They're super excited about this beautiful structure, and then they're going through the religious motions, and, and we make it a priority to get there, and we, we lift up our hands in worship, and I, and I pay my tithe, and, and he's like, no, 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 but there's needs among you, and you seem to not care. In fact, you probably not. By the way, I would just add this aside. If you're a part of a church that doesn't challenge or uh, challenge you or require something of you, you probably need a new church. There's a lot of places that you can kind of ease into and never be expected of anything. And I would simply say, it's like joining a gym without a regular spot. There's this invitation of Jesus to be a part of 
salvation. Ours, theirs. It's, it's, part of the, it's part of the deal. And it's a beautiful invitation for restoration, for redemption, for salvation. So um, now, we finally get to, this is where Jesus teaches the parable. And he goes into three parables. The first parable is the parable of two sons, which we'll talk about. One has a very active response, and one has a passive response. And I would admit that I have responded in both ways more than once. He teaches a second parable about the tenants. There's these tenants who are working on the owner's land, and it's time for the harvest. And so the owner sends his servants to pick up not only the rent, but his portion of the harvest, and they kill him. They kill the servants, he sends his son, they kill the son, which is this metaphor for you've killed the prophets, and now you've killed my son Jesus, and, and then you've forgotten who the source of your life actually is, because I own it all. I am letting you by your, my good graces have a living. And then he goes and paints this picture at the beginning of uh, chapter 22, where he talks about the wedding feast. And he sends out all these invitations. And the first round of invitations, people are too busy living their own lives. So they ignore the invitation and don't come. So Jesus, or, so the king throws out a second invitation to all the other street people. And the picture is, I threw out the invitation to all the Jews, and they just didn't respond. And now I'm throwing it out to all the Gentiles. There is this very pointed imagery to the leadership and the authority and to the status quo and saying there's a different way to be. So now I want a person. The kingdom of heaven is like these two sons. And, and without seeming like I've got uh, like some bipolar condition, I would say I respond both, in both ways. What do you think? There was a man who had two sons. He went to the first and he said, son, go and work in the vineyard. He's like, I won't. He answered, but later he changed his mind and he went. Then the father went to the other son and he said the same thing. He answered, I will serve, but he did not go. Which of these two did the father uh, wanted? The first, did what the father wanted. The first, they answered. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God ahead of you. For John came to show you the way of righteousness and you did not believe him, but the tax collectors and prostitutes did. And even after you saw this, you did not repent and believe him. So the story is, is connected to this larger picture of these three parables. But I would simply say this about this parable. Um, the kingdom of heaven is like a son. And you have to ask the question, what's worse? If you say, um, no, I won't, but you go on and do it, or say, no, I can't, or yeah, I will, and, and never show up. Both are sort of maddening. And yes, I'm guilty of both. But in this picture, based on the invitation that we all have, he's saying to this, the story challenges are sometimes sort of hesitant response to be a part of God's salvation. Guilty. That sounds like work. That feels uncomfortable. I like my way better than your way. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, and, and, and so what he's saying is he's, we have this hesitant response to be a part of God's salvation. But in God invites us to follow, to, to say yes without reluctance, but to begin to trust, maybe with greater levels of compassion, trust him with greater levels of generosity, 
hospitality. David says, trust me with the results, but you just keep sowing the seeds. I got this. Let me worry about ROI. You worry about planting the seeds. I got this. And then the beautiful part is this. Who is it in this parable that he celebrates? He celebrates the prostitutes and the tax collectors, the white-collar criminals and the street people, the most despised in society, the most outcast in society, the most vulnerable in society, and he celebrates them who respond to the invitation without holding their initial reaction of non-response against them or their past against them, which is a beautiful grace and mercy. So when we come to faith and when we want to live in the resurrection, what we're saying is, I want to be born again and again and again and again when necessary. We get to begin again and again and again. And new life comes at us all the time. What God is continually trying to do is resensitize our hearts so that we might be more conditioned to the voice of the leading of the Holy Spirit. So it's a time of work then and now. And there's moments that I think Jesus here was being really strategic and sort of coming out. It reminds me of some of the things that Banksy did, right? Banksy has these great commentaries on what's happening in society and, and, and what's happening with the power structures in our society. And Jesus comes with this upside-down kingdom, this, this kind of overthrow of what is a servant leader versus what is a military leader. And, and he makes this commentary, which, again, Gaza Strip. Uh, and this is in San Francisco, Native American holding up a no trespassing sign. Uh, and because there's actually no corruption in the International Olympic Committee, and there's no ceiling or greed going on there, but there's a wonderful commentary that he might hypothesize that, yeah, there's not a problem with child soldiers, as long as it's not my kid, right? And, and so there's this pointed commentary that he keeps making, and what he, I think he's saying is the kingdom of heaven on earth is more than simply doing something nice. It's having a passion for God's salvation uh, because you understand the world that God intended. This isn't supposed to be the normal. You know, it's been said that anger isn't really an emotion as much as it is a reaction. And Jesus has a very angry reaction. Because it's rooted in this passion that he has for the least for the marginalized, for the poor among them, for those living uh, without the same kind of maybe lavish lifestyle that I enjoy. But he also says this uh, in Luke 17. He says, the coming of the kingdom of God is not something that can be observed. Nor will people say, here it is or there it is, because the kingdom of God is this is citizenship, dual citizenship, and heaven here and now. See, we're invited to do this thing called the new normal because what we want to do is pursue heaven here and now. Not in grandiose ways, not in life-changing ways, not in world-changing ways, in seed-planting ways. So who among you, who in your sphere of influence, who within your earshot or eyeshot has a simple need and they will never ask for help, but you make yourself available. See, you've been given maybe an HEB gift card. You've been given maybe $50 cash envelope. Listen, I want you to practice compassion. I want you to practice generosity. But really what I'm trying to do is just be a catalyst 
for something greater. Give away the 50 bucks, give away the gift card, and learn a lifestyle. But maybe most importantly is, is our, our rhythm for renewal, which simply says, I want to develop a growing awareness of the presence of God so that my heart is being more conditioned to the Holy Spirit's prompts, leading, and guidance. So if he says, go, I go. If God's on the move, I'm moving where God's moving. And there's this alignment that begins to take place. The goal is always to ignite our awareness and the presence of God in us. So this is what I would simply say, welcome to church. This is, this is why we're here. It's been said that the church uh, doesn't have a mission. The mission of God has a church. So let's go and make disciples. Can we pray with you? Our Father in heaven, I'm reminded of your love, but your, your profound concern for how you just done this thing down to normal, and there's just profound needs among us. And so I just pray that you would awaken us, and you would stir us, and you would convict us, but you would move us. And so, Lord, where we are so caught up with what my conscience says, I pray that you would open our eyes to see that which you see, and you would open our hearts uh, to respond in faith and obedience, and trust you with results. But I pray that tomorrow morning you would give us opportunities to Salt life. You give us ways in which we can just leverage your kingdom on earth. I pray that we would be the ambassadors for your salvation. And so, uh, would you just give us your mind, your thoughts, give us your eyes, your ears, uh, and soften our hearts to, to, to what is uh, heavy on yours. And so, praise in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Amen.